You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Wrapping up uh, this chapter of Galatians, this is going very fast. Uh, which is good. It's not bad. It's good. By the way, I just need to recognize uh, two elephants in the room. Uh, <laughs> the seating arrangement uh, threw me off uh, big time. It's probably throwing you off. That's okay. It's good to be shaken up from our uh, normal rhythms. That's that's fine. Um, there was another elephant in the room. Oh, the Christmas tree. Yeah, come. Okay. So, sorry. I don't know. It's just one of those things, uh, an extended Christmas uh, this is this is like backwards. Uh, there's always one. There's always one. This is like backwards Narnia. It's like it's always Christmas but never fully winter. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. <laughs> is that what, is that what we're dealing with here? I don't I don't know. You got you got that reference. All right, good. All right. Those are those are the elephants in the room. So welcome elephants. All right. Galatians four tonight. Uh, where's my clicky pen? Oh, there it is. Hidden. Good work. All right, clicky pen. Tonight, we're focusing on how gospel clarity leads to a radical pursuit of our freedom. How gospel clarity leads to a radical pursuit of our freedom. This is the second week uh, we've talked about gospel clarity. Uh, Really, we've been talking about gospel clarity all along. Uh, Paul jumps out the gate pretty quick. I am astonished that you have abandoned him who called you into this grace. Not that there is another gospel. Uh, There's only one. There's no other gospel. And so he has tried to clarify, maybe make very specific, maybe to the exclusion of all other things. There's only one. There's very clearly only one gospel. So this is the second week we're going to talk about it in uh, in this specific way. But really, we've been clarifying the gospel all along. So I want to kind of talk this, a word about clarity and, and, and kind of maybe even do a little bit of review last week and into a little uh, introduction this week. Uh, I'm getting a lot of really good feedback from this sermon series, and that actually as a pastor really encourages me uh, personally. Even today, I received a note um, just this has been really helpful, like tremendously helpful, tremendously clarifying. I'm learning so much. My kids are learning so much. Thank you. This has helped us in very profound ways. And I'm, I am grateful to hear that and, and to know that it's going that way and not the other way. Uh, that's very helpful. I, I'm so confused. Why did you do this to us? Um, yeah, I'm not hearing that, which I'm very thankful for. I mentioned uh, a while back, a couple sermons ago, that I feel like I could talk about the distinction between law and gospel every single week into perpetuity because the law-gospel distinction is where a lot of us live but don't have a lot of clarity. It hits the sweet spot between the most important things about our lives, maybe the most 
heightened fears or the greatest anxieties or the biggest guilts and shames. It has that intersection running across the greatest confusion of our Christian experience. We don't often know what to do with fear or guilt, shame, anxiety, self-justification easily pours out of our lives. This compulsion to, I've got to fix my problems, and so it must be something I have to do, that comes out of our lives like the breath out of our lungs. It is easy. It's not even something we think about. We live by do without blinking. And so I, I think I could talk about this law gospel distinction every day, every Sunday, into world without end, because I think the self-justifying spirit of us, along with the reality of law, the thing, the, the um, what, did, what did Paul call it? The principles of this world, right? What we live in every week around us and the things coming out of our hearts, it hits this cross section like perfectly. And so we don't have a lot of clarity and yet we all bend in a little bit closer when we start to talk about it, right? It's like, hold on, tell me that one more time. I'm not sure I quite understood that, like fully, I grasped it. And so we do this every week. I, I feel like there's a hunger every week where you guys come back. This, by the way, this is my heart too. Come, I, I come back and there's certain preachers I, I listen to because they hit the law gospel distinction clearly into the I'm bending in and I'm saying like, yeah, just tell me that one more time. I think I get it, but this week I have areas where I know I didn't get it. So tell me one more time, right? And so there's a lot of struggle with this. Like, good struggle, but like, but struggle, right? It's hard to hear this sometimes. And sometimes it causes you to stop dead in your tracks and like say, hold up, I thought I heard this. I've been told all along this. And so growing up in a certain way or being naturally instituted by nature a certain way, we have ways of thinking, feeling that Paul is trying to, and Christ, the Spirit, is trying to dissect the other way. And so I want to welcome you into a struggle and to say that, like, if you're struggling, no, it seems like a lot of us are struggling, okay? But I want, to, I want you to do so in a way that bends into grace, okay? Don't, grace is scary. We'll talk about that this, t- tonight. But grace is really scary, and if you're scared of the word— if you're scared of the idea, which we all are, and I'll, we'll figure out why, if you're scared of the word, you'll probably get scared by your struggle. And I just want to encourage you, Abraham and a whole host of people in Hebrews chapter 11 who lived by faith deeply struggled. Deeply struggled with God's promise. Deeply struggled with matters of, wait, you're asking me to just believe you? Just trust you? That seems hard for me to do. Seems hard for me to settle on. And I just want to encourage you to do that, all right? So when I'm pushing for gospel clarity, just know it's going to cause you to struggle, okay? Last week, I probably didn't know this, I was struggling to preach it. When Paul prays for boldness, when he's talking about clarifying the gospel amongst people that he's ministering to, I know now what he means, because to clarify the gospel means you have to push people right over the edge of self-sufficiency and self-justification and say, I hope you land on Jesus. 
And that is a scary thing for a pastor to do. Okay? It's much easier to push you on your own self-sufficiency and says, I think you guys can do it. That's actually easier to say. It's wrong, but it's easier to say, right? I just feel better about that. It puts me at ease a little bit more to say, you can probably figure it out. I've got it figured out. It feels easier. It's not right, but it feels easier. So I want you to struggle. Gospel clarity. Again, this is the second week we're talking about it specifically. But last week, we talked about how gospel clarity leads to a kind of blessedness. Having gospel clarity, being razor sharp on matters of the gospel. Maybe if I can say it even this way, kind of being scandalized by the gospel one way and then yet scandalizing other people on the other edge, being razor sharp in realities of the gospel allows you to experience the blessedness that the gospel gives you, that it offers you. Particularly last week, maybe I can say it this way, knowing who the verbs belong to offers us clarity. Last week, if you want to look, chapter 4, verse 8, knowing who the verbs belong to, having that kind of razor-sharp clarity gives you a kind of blessedness. Look what he says in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. You were enslaved to the law. You were enslaved to life by do. But now that you have come to know God, but rather, and here's his gospel clarity right here, rather to be known by God, How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you hear that gospel clarity? You used to not know God and you were enslaved to the law, but now you do know God. Let's be really clear. He knows you. He knows your name. He has ministered his grace to you. And now you want to turn back to the law. And he says, where is your blessedness? That's the question later on in the passage. You've lost your happiness in the gospel. You were so happy that you used to love me freely. Now, because some people wanted to distort the gospel and turn you back to the law, and you were happy to do that, you've actually lost your way, and now I'm your enemy. And now the person you used to love unconditionally and free with a wonderful spirit, now you treat as someone against you. Someone at odds. It's like you've lost not just your faith, but you've lost even the law itself. Verb clarity leads to blessedness, assurance, joy, and peace. Maybe I can say it this way. Knowing God in his graciousness, knowing God according to the realities of his one-way love, that leads to blessedness, assurance, joy, and peace. And let it be known that where there is a lack of this kind of blessedness, there is always the presence of legalism. Where there is a lack of this kind of blessedness, assurance, peace, joy, there is always the presence of legalism. Okay? Now, legalism has many different forms. Okay? Legalism can look like church legalism, okay? And that may be, for us as church people, maybe easier to sniff, okay? We can sniff that out if somebody comes in here and says, you have to wear pants, 
No, wait, no. If you have to wear, you ladies, you have to wear skirts in order to be saved. We can sniff that out, right? We we've done that before, right? <laughs> raise your hands if we've done that before. We don't need to raise a hand, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? If somebody says you must stop listening to X style of music or else you cannot be a Christian, we can sniff that out, right? Nah, not Jesus. I nope, 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 nope. But legalism can also look like mundane, ordinary things of life. I must hit a certain body weight count in order to feel okay. I will be okay if my kids would fill in the blank, right? If I could get this in my life under control, then I would have some sense of peace. If I could look good in my job, if I could get that promotion, if I could get that raise, then I will have some level of, I'm awesome. Right? That's legalism too. Why do I say that? Because that's life by law, that's life by do, that's creating a rule in order to get, feel, be, achieve. And these things give us some sort of value. And we might not say necessarily it's salvific value in, in the end, but we would say at least in the meanwhile, it offers me some level of peace, assurance, joy, satisfaction, meaning, contentment, fill in the blank. Right? Life by do, life by law, this is always present where there is no blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Where there is a lack of this kind of blessedness where I'm good, I'm complete in Jesus, now I can love you with no strings attached, I can love you and I move instinctively without even thinking about it, with having someone actually remind me, hey, you loved me today. What? I did? Yeah, you did. Without that, there's always the presence of legalism in our hearts and minds. Legalism, religious or irreligious, happens all the time in our hearts. Where do I experience, maybe you can ask this question, where do I experience this kind of anti-blessedness? Where or what robs you of anti-blessedness? robs you of blessedness. One pastor, if I can read this longer quote, says this. If you eat your broccoli, you can have some dessert. If you can clean up your room, you'll get a star. And if you get a star, then mom and dad will be happy. If you get good grades, you'll pass the class. And if you pass the class, you'll graduate. If you work hard, you'll make some money. And if you get some money, then you can buy that car. If you have a nice car, she might finally go out with you. And if you treat her nice, she may stick around. If you hurt her feelings, though, and need her forgiveness, you'll have to say sorry. But if she agrees to marry you, then maybe the guys at work will look at you differently. And of course, if you get their respect, you might be considered for that promotion. There will be more responsibilities, so you had better perform, because if you don't, the company won't have a good quarter, and, well, there might have to be some cutbacks. If you lose your job, you might not be able to provide for your family, and, well, schools aren't cheap. There are no free lunches after all. Even broccoli is getting more expensive these days. The fact is, real life is long on law and short on grace. The demands never stop. The failures pile up and the fears set in. Life requires many things from us. A successful career, a stable marriage, well-behaved and emotionally adjusted children, a certain quality of life. And when life gets hard, the hardworking work harder. 
Is it any wonder that we're all so tired? We do our best to do better, to do more, and to do now. The cultural pressures to take care of yourself and make it happen by working harder and smarter wears us out. We live with long lists of things to accomplish and people to please. Anyone living inside the guilt, anxiety, stress, and strain of uncertainty of daily life knows from instinct and hard experience the weight of life is heavy. We are all in need of some relief. We are all in need of God's unconditional grace. Amen? So where do we go? Gospel clarity. Gospel clarity leads to a radical pursuit of your freedom from the expectation of the law. Paul is now going to give us an illustration that is really helpful, um, probably surprising. I think if uh, by the normal rules of hermeneutics and interpretation, uh, Bible interpretation, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody outside of Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit who would interpret Genesis uh, 16, 17, and 21 in this way. But we are given a gift uh, by Paul and the Spirit here uh, to read our Bible backwards and see some amazing things. So he's going to give quite the uh, illustration here in these verses before us. Paul moves from clarity of grammar to clarity of illustration, right? Paul was very concerned last week that you understood the verbs. Who's doing the verbs? You know God now. Rather, he knows you. Let's be really clear. It's not about you ascending into a certain knowledge of God and being everything you need to be. He knows you. He found you. He knows your name. He loves you. This is the blessedness that we receive. Now he wants to hone in on an illustration and allow us to gain some clarity here. This is verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. I love this. He starts off saying, tell me, you desire to be under the law. You desperately want to go back under the law. Even this came from last week. We have just this chronic desire to get back under the law. It's safe. It's secure. It gives us a ladder to climb. It gives us check marks to, or check boxes to check off. We love it. We're addicted to it. He says, you who want to be under the law, do not listen to the law. And by this, he's actually shifting the language a little bit. Uh, the, the word law, even how even I might even express it, uh, can be interchangeable in scriptures. And this is one of those examples. You who wish to be under the Mosaic law, do you not listen to the Pentateuch? Is probably a more helpful way of talking about it. Because he's going to quote, he's going to pick up an idea from Genesis 16, 17, and 22. 
He calls this an allegory, but really it's not a true allegory. Uh, allegories, how we talk about it, are fictional ideas or fictional stories or concepts that relate to reality. This is a reality that relates to a reality. And so in this way, it might be more helpful uh, to talk about it more like a metaphor or an illustration or a picture. It might give us more clarity. It's not truly allegorical in that sense. In other words, the story of Hagar and Sarah stands on its own as its own true reality with its own interpretive meaning. Does that make sense? It's not just made up in order to prove a certain point in Galatians. It has its own thing. But Paul's going to pick up on it and say there are some really critical things going on here that help clarify this law-gospel distinction. In this metaphor, allegory, there are three pairs. There's the mothers, there are the sons, and there are the locations. And he says the mothers here, it's the mothers that are significant. These two mothers represent two covenants. So here we go. Got a chart. Look at this. Look at this detail. Look at this, guys. This is great. This was actually a source of pride for me this week. You guys, you guys should be proud of me for putting this much detail into something and then getting it on a screen somehow. That took a lot. Life by law, that feels good. That's a big fat check mark that I can check off and say, I am justified in that. That's great. All right. Two mothers that are significantly important here. These covenants, maybe it's helpful to say, these covenants help us see how two different ways of how to relate to God. Okay? Two different ways that we often think about relating to God or having a relationship with God. The first covenant is Hagar. The first picture here is, is Hagar. If you remember the story from Genesis 16 and 17, God comes to Abraham and Sarah and promises them uh, a, a child. And they think this is hilarious because they are well beyond the birth-giving age, and they think this is kind of impossible, God. What are you asking us to do? And he's like, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm telling you what I am going to do for you. And so they start getting itchy, and they don't really listen to God's promise as it is. They start thinking, maybe God's asking us to get religious. Maybe he's asking us to obey in some way. You know, there's like, God goes 50%. He gives you a promise, and then you got to go 50%. you got to fulfill your end. you got to fulfill your duty. And so what does he do? He says, Sarah, well, we're not going to have a child by you. Actually, this is Sarah coming to Abraham. I'm not going to have a child by me. Maybe you should go into Hagar and actually have a child through her. That would make sense. Maybe that's what God's asking you to do. Maybe that's how God's asking you to get his promise done. And so Paul picks this up and says, Hagar represents this covenant of works. This covenant of you do your part, God does his part, and it's conditional. God's happy to do his part as long as you do your part. It works together fairly similarly like that. But the problem is, Hagar is a slave woman. Hagar is not a wife. Hagar isn't naturally related to Abraham in any way that's significant. In fact, you can say she's literally bought in, but not actually related, not spiritually united, not even maritally united to him. There's really no relationship other than this slave transaction. And so in that sense, this is nothing really significant. This is just a representation of the law. This is this representation of if you can do it, great. But if not, okay. Sarah, though, represents an entirely different covenant. Sarah represents this covenant of grace, this unconditional covenant. 
Now remember, this is exactly how God intended to work. The picture that God wanted to clarify for Abraham and Sarah. Yes, her womb is dead. That's the whole point. <laughs> That's how I do my work. I've brought this up several times, this, this reality of like God, God only works from death to life, right? He doesn't use even, we, we often use the phrase of this idea like we're broken people. He doesn't, he doesn't really often, he doesn't do that. It's not really broken in the sense of like, eh, we're about 25% functional. If we could just figure out a way to be fully functional, that would be great. No, like the scope of the Christian life is literally from zero to 100, from death to life. We see this all over. God creates out of nothing. He created every galaxy, microbe, and hill. It didn't exist before, and God brought it to be. This is like Lazarus, at, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, right? He was dead, dead, like three days stinky dead, like really dead, very dead of very dead. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. Sarah's womb was actually in the Hebrew word literally dead. It's not possible, physically unable. We need a divine miracle if something's going to happen. And God's like, yeah, that's where I do my work. And so it is with our regeneration. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the power of the air, right? We, we were on that trajectory, which is no trajectory. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Zero to 100. That's how God works. He doesn't work in any other way. So this is a fully unconditional promise. God's going to do the miracle when Abraham, they could have done literally nothing and God would have done it. God would have fulfilled all the conditions. And of course, the reality is she's a free woman, which is interesting in our minds because like free, but in this context here, She's actually like bound to her husband. And that's actually what Paul means to be free is to be bound in a full relationship. She, Sarah needs nothing more to be the wife. She is the wife. She's united to Abraham. They share everything. If I can say it this way, Sarah is complete in Abraham. Does that make sense? She needs nothing else. She's not like the slave woman. Hagar's got a long way to go to be in right relationship with Abraham. Sarah's got everything. She needs to do nothing more to be in a right relationship with Abraham. It's totally free. If I can say it this way, she is bound to Abraham's love. And in this way, that presents a beautiful picture of how God intends for us to live, bound in God's love. That's what real freedom is. We are in a right relationship with God where we need nothing to do to fulfill the conditions of it. We just simply get to exist in the reality of God's love. And in that love, we are free. We have nothing to do. It's all been provided. Just exist in it. This is a picture of the reality of the gospel. But of course, you know how this goes. Abraham goes into Hagar and out comes Ishmael. And these are the two sons. Ishmael is recorded in our passage here as being born according to the flesh. Born according to what one can do. Born according to the natural desires of the law. What we want to do. I can fulfill God's promise on my own or my condition of the promise. The only problem is, in this line of thinking, you would assume, okay, if I'm able to meet the conditions... And if God's able to meet his side of the conditions, then what's going to come out is a free son. And that's not at all what came out. Ishmael was born a slave. Why? Because his mom was a slave. 
And in that sense, yes, he was Abraham's biological son, but he had a long way to go when it came to actually being a son according to Abraham. Long way to go. And so this actually corresponds then to Mount Sinai, which is really interesting metaphorically or allegorically. This helps meet the metaphor because Ishmael and his descendants actually settled in Arabia in and around Mount Sinai. Of course, Mount Sinai is where God gave the law. And Paul picks this up and says, it it works out perfectly. The Ishmaelites, the slaves, rally around Mount Sinai and they have what they are really ruled by. They have God's law given to them. And so they are slaves. Now he says this Mount Sinai corresponds to present day Jerusalem. What does he mean by this? Well, where does the life of law and the life of those bound by slavery to the law, where does that have its center point? Well, in the temple, which is found in Jerusalem. So what Paul's trying to point here here is that Ishmael and his descendants bound to the law, slaves to the law, just look and find where all of that is located. It's in Jerusalem. What do you see there? You see people who are so bound and tightly wound by this idea of I have to do that it creates this kind of insulated, fleshly, single nationality kind of it's either us or it's them, life by law, we have to do kind of scenario. Just look at what's going on in Jerusalem. And really, this is kind of an earthly scenario. This is life by flesh. This is life by the law. But Isaac is born to Sarah. And of course, everybody's laughing at this because this is the true miracle here. This is the one born through promise. Literally born of a miracle. The womb is opened up. And Isaac is born actually a son. Born a biological son. Needs nothing. Right relationship with Abraham. A descendant and an heir of all things. According to miracle. Did nothing to deserve it. But was born and therefore had everything and needed nothing. And he says this corresponds with the Jerusalem above. Actually this is really heaven. This is the spiritual Israel. This is the one who actually John and his revelation would come to see this Jerusalem coming down from the sky. We'll read here in a little bit. And what we see in this Israel is a multinational family of freedom. We see people from all walks and tribes of life, Jews and Gentiles, into this spiritual house of Israel that God has justified freely by his grace. These people who don't live according to law, but live actually in fulfillment of the law. They live in love to the nations. They live in, as a blessing to the nations. I want to read Galatians 4.27, this little Isaiah quote here, and I'm going to read it from the message uh, translation here. I think it's a little helpful. Rejoice, barren woman who bears no children. Shout and cry out, woman who has no birth pangs, because the children of the barren woman, that's Sarah, now surpass the children of the chosen woman. That's Hagar. The children of Sarah, the spiritual children of Erica, those of faith, and of course, that's all kinds. That's Jews, that's Gentiles, that's slave or free, that's male or female, now surpass both in number but also in quality the children of the chosen woman, those who are earthly or of a one kind or the flesh-minded ones. It says what the law can do the gospel far exceeds it. That's his point. 
The law creates good Jews, but the gospel creates the heavenly Jerusalem. The law, the, the law can create really good uh, monochrome rule keepers, but the gospel creates a multi-palleted, a beautiful mosaic of God's grace that actually is more in number, but also more in the quality. Can I read you that Revelation 21 passage? This is actually picked up here. It's beautiful. What John sees, this new Jerusalem, this spiritual Jerusalem, us, you and I, what God through the promise is able to accomplish. This is what is coming for us and really is ours, but it's coming. Revelation 21, one through four. I put it on the screen there for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God is saying, I will be fully relatable to these people. They will be mine. I will be theirs. They will need nothing more. And the entire curse that has been brought by sin and is enhanced by the law will be absolutely no more. I'm bringing an end to their cursedness. And by virtue of my promise to them through Christ, I will accomplish and bring to them their entire blessedness. And so what's the point? Well, verse 28 is the point. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. He's basically saying if we are children of promise, and he's trying to reaffirm that reality, we are not Christians on the basis of our performance, we know that, we get that, but some of you want to go back to the law as if you owe it something. What he's saying is we are we have started by the promise, we will continue forever by the promise, and we don't owe the law a thing. Having begun by the Spirit, are we now being perfected by the flesh? That's ridiculous. We are born by the Spirit, born by a miracle, born according to the reality of simple faith. And now, my friends, we continue into that. We don't owe the law a thing. Why would you want to go back? That's the illustration, but I'm telling you right now, there's always opposition to this, isn't there? It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? It it seems literally too good to be true that in the Christian life, right here and right now, I can look you square in the eye as a preacher of the gospel and really say, no, guys, it's finished. It's done. You, You don't owe the law a thing. There's nothing you need that in Jesus you do not already have. That seems way too good to be true. It seems laughable. It seems ridiculous, maybe scandalous, maybe a little frustrating, maybe a little agitating in the soul. Because you might be asking, well, then what do I have to do this week? Literally nothing. You don't owe the law a thing. What what more could you accomplish? You you, want to go back to to, to Ishmael. You want to go back to that way of life. What possibly could could Ishmael and his people, according to the law, Mount Sinai, earthly Jerusalem, temple, go back to that? What could you accomplish? 
It's silly. There's always opposition to grace. This he says in verse 29, but just just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it also is now. People who are addicted to the law always give a bunch of hooey to those who just cry out grace alone. They always want to oppose. They always want to throw asterisks and they want to qualify. Yes, grace, but they always want to say, but that doesn't mean stop, stop, stop. Stop trying to qualify God's grace. Stop trying to put an asterisk or tie in some minuscule aspect of the law to Jesus's it is finished. That's like what Ishmael would do. That's like what the Jews, the, the Judaizers wanted to do to the Galatians. It's as old as time, man. Stop. Why is there always this opposition? We're not there yet, but Paul's going to lead into this in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. You're welcome to look over there. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Life by the Spirit is always opposed to life by law. Life by law hates life by the Spirit. Get ready for a battle. This is going to be going on until one day the law and all these things have passed away, Revelation 21. The old things until they are totally done and Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes and says, the sea is no more, no more judgment, no more everything. Simply, it's done. Until that happens, the spirit and the flesh are going to be at war with each other. And that's the struggle of the Christian life. The struggle with the Christian life is not just all the bad things that you do. It's the good things that keep you from the realities of of the gospel. It's that kind of struggle. Our souls are easily troubled, easily troubled, and also quick to trouble others. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 1.7? I'm astonished that you have deserted him and have listened to another gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who want to trouble you and to distort the gospel of grace. There are some who want to slip in a little bit of But you also have to be doing this or else. There's some who want to trouble you. And by the way, you want to trouble you. And you have a heart for troubling others. It's always going to be this struggle and this wrestling. I've mentioned this before. One of my favorite preachers says, The law offends us because it tells us what to do. And nobody likes to be told what to do. But grace offends us even more because it tells us that there's nothing we can do. It's hard to swallow, isn't it? Robert Capon, another famous preacher, kind of, if you can imagine the Judaizers sitting in Paul's pew, would say something like this to Paul. Restore to us, preacher, the comfort of merit and demerit. Prove for us that there is at least something we can do, that we are still at whatever dim recess of our nature, the master of our relationships. Tell us, prophet, that in spite of all of our nights of losing, there will be yet one redeeming card of our very own to fill the inside straight we have so long and so earnestly tried to draw to. But whatever you do, do not preach grace. We insist on being reckoned with. Give us something, anything. 
but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Isn't that how we feel? I mean, give me, give me something. At least my church attendance? I mean, does that chalk up anything? I mean, like, I mean, I'm really a nice person. I've been a Christian for so long. I made a choice for Jesus, right? I know God. Paul's like, he knows you. Just spare us the indignity of indiscriminate acceptance. My friend, it's true. That's all that the gospel provides is indiscriminate acceptance, unconditional love, full and free promise. My friends, this is our liberation, and this is exactly what Paul is driving at here. This is what he wants in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? All right, religious people, read your Bibles. What does it say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is a direct quote from Genesis 21.10. This is actually Sarah coming to Abraham and basically saying, hey man, she's got to go. Abraham actually doesn't like this because maybe that's mean, right? Maybe that's a little mean. Maybe that's a little. Maybe that's a little harsh. And maybe we wouldn't say like, "Come on, they're just they're they're good people. They're just trying to. They're a little religious." But come on, come on. And Abraham gets a little upset. Actually, he gets a little upset because he looks at Ishmael and says, "That's my son. That's what I produced. That's me. That's like that's my fruit. Look what I did. Look what I made." So he's a little perturbed when Sarah comes to him, the representation of God's full and unconditional promise, and says, she's got to go, man. This law stuff has got to go. And he's like, oh, but that's my stuff. That's like my righteousness. I did a little bit here. Look what I did. And God actually comes to Abraham and says, no, she's right. She's got to go. Doesn't it feel that way, too, when God comes to us and says, hey, your righteousness, man, it's got to go. Give it up. The promise is right, you know. It is unconditional. It is free. It's not about what you do. It's about what I've done for you. It's got to go. It's tough work, though. Gospel clarity leads you to repent of every good thing you've ever done. Gospel clarity leads you to repent of every good thing you've ever done. If it has your name on it, it needs a kind of repentance, like in this way. Leave that thing at the altar. Leave it. Walk away. She's got to go, man. Get her out of the house. If we have God's promise, we need nothing else. We need no longer to look at things we've produced, both past, present, or future. We're free from the burden of having to bring anything to the table. And if we're free, then we are free then to radically pursue this freedom and to keep it and to maintain it. And this is what Paul said. Don't go back. Don't bring the slave woman back in. You have everything you need in the promise. I think Paul is saying to us, cast off life by do. Cast it away. Cast it off. Leave behind slavery to the law. But to do that, you have to be reassured of what you have. 
Casting off life by due only makes sense in one way, that you have everything you need. Because if you don't have everything you need, then the law makes sense, right? You better get busy. Good luck, and may the odds be ever in your favor. But if somebody is telling you, cast off life by due, it's no more. You have no need of that lifestyle anymore than my friends. The, reality, the only position that, could, that uh, condition could be fulfilled is if you have everything you need. And we, ha- and we do. And so he says, embrace life by done. And he reminds us of this. Look at this promise in verse 31. He's trying to reassure them. And so he communicates this by the language of promise. Brothers, we are not children of the slave. We are children of the free woman. We have been born by grace. We owe the law nothing. Submerse yourself in the promise. Submerse yourself into the scariness of his grace. Submerse yourself into the sonship of Jesus. That's what God is calling us to do. And it is scary, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard. It's just so hard. We have a lot that we can, can contribute to. But my friends, it's true about you too. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've been baptized into him, you are not a child of the slave woman. You are a child of the free woman and you don't owe the law anything anymore. It is finished.